please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In chapter 12, the preacher begins to apply the truth of that verse in chapter 10, verse 36, which stated that his hearers had need of endurance. Because it is only after they have done the will of God that they will receive what was promised. Faith alone united them to Christ, but that faith is never alone. It perseveres in life. It endures all the way to the salvation of souls, chapter 10, verse 39. And so in chapter 11, he listed for his hearers the many successful, though not yet completed, examples of this enduring faith. So now in these two verses, he repeats his exhortation to endure. He uses the marathon as a picture of the Christian life. The life of faith is a long-distance race. It requires exertion, regulation, progression, and endurance. Thankfully, the race is not run alone. There is, waiting at the finish line, a great crowd of runners who have already successfully completed the race, and their presence testifies to us whenever we remember it, that through trial, there will be triumph. Faith will win the victory. And remembering them should be a motivation to endure. Now what the preacher does is present three helpful supports to running the marathon with endurance. So our third point, in a sense, from the one message, is three helpful supports. These are three ways found in these two verses that teach us how to run the race successfully. In other words, these are the means that God intends for you to use to finish the race. In fact, this is how the race must be run if you are going to cross the finish line. The first two involve putting off things, and the third involves putting on a practice. Now, runners in serious training, they all learn how to think this way. What must I avoid? What must I stop doing in order to run, finish, even win this race? What habits must I learn so that I can keep on going all the way to the finish line? 
Well, now, the first two of these supports are found in the middle of verse 1, and the second one is at the beginning of verse 2. First, the two things that we are to put off. It says very clearly in the middle of verse 1, let, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. First, you and I must learn to lay aside every weight. Now, a weight here is any hindrance to sustained running. It's anything that slows you down, anything that makes running difficult. Now, all sins weigh us down, of course. But from this first phrase, it's clear that there are other things in this life besides sins that also are a hindrance to actually finishing salvation, to continuing on in faith. There are things other than sins that might inhibit you from running well. Now, remember in the Greek games, the marathoners divested themselves of all of their clothing. And runners today wear very light clothing that doesn't inhibit their movements. Their shoes are made of very sophisticated materials these days which, yes, support their feet, but don't drag them down. And their regular running removes even extra body weight. So they carry nothing extra, nothing unnecessary for the race, nothing that would slow them down. And all of this, of course, reminds us that sometimes... There are good things in this life, in your life, in my life. There are good things that aren't sins that could still weigh us down in the race of faith. You know, wearing a heavy parka is not a sin. Lacing on steel-toed boots may be very appropriate. If you're an Arctic explorer, put on a parka. If you work on a construction site, please put on steel-toed boots. But those things would weigh a runner down. And this picture of the Christian life is not you as an Arctic explorer and not you as a construction worker. The picture is you as a runner. And so they must be laid aside. They must be put off. So what the preacher is calling us to do here is to examine our lives and practice the scriptural doctrine of self-denial. Oh, yeah, the sermon just got unpleasant. Those are Jesus' words. We are called to humbly, humbly, and accurately know ourselves well enough to ask. Here's something I'm doing. It's not wrong. It's not sin in itself. But... Could it be that this thing is hindering me in my Christian race? I was reminded by some of the reading this week and a couple of the men who are doing this reading on the preaching class that the goal of a sermon isn't to inform your mind. It's, it's to change our hearts and therefore our behavior. Right? 
So I'm asking you to go home, start right now, but go home and answer this question. What's weighing me down? Now, it could be almost anything in this life, and it will vary from person to person. So I'm not asking you to come back and tell me next week what's holding your partner down, your husband, your wife, your children, your friend. I'm asking you to consider what weighs you down. That's much harder and much more unpleasant. And it takes a kind of humble honesty that we must beg God for help with, because otherwise we're just... We're going to fool ourselves and overlook those things that we, we love and, and we hold tightly onto. Uh, they're not sins. They're, they're, I'm not sinning, Pastor. That isn't the question. The question is, does this help you run light and long? Or does this make you into just a perpetually, you can barely drag yourself down the racetrack kind of Christian? Which is it? Christ said in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would follow me, if anyone's going to run the race with endurance that I ran with endurance, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world but forfeits his soul? I'm not calling upon you to a kind of asceticism that earns your salvation. I'm not asking you to um, stop doing certain things at certain times of the year because that'll earn you more points with God. Jesus earned all the points you need. You don't need any more points. But you do need to imitate him and run the race without so much weight without so many hindrances. I'm calling you to the kind of thinking that says since we run by faith how do we best run so that we don't fall short? What should we throw off to efficiently run the race of faith. And isn't it true that how easily, I think especially for us in the richest country that the world has ever seen, how easy it is for your and my proper use of the things of the world to become a hindrance in the path of perseverance. I hope, you, I hope you completely believe that because it's so true and it's so necessary for your healthy running. You know, for a man to work is good, isn't it? In fact, it's commanded. He must do it. But you could take a good thing and you could work in such a way as to weigh down your spiritual life. Relaxation, Hobbies, food, entertainment may all be proper, but they can easily impede progress in the race of faith. What's yours? It's meddling time. Video games? Your phone? Your computer? Your friends? 
sports. Your clothes, your face, your hair. Going out with your friends or family. Do you work so much you can't serve the people of God? Do you talk on your phone but not with God? Do you keep up with politics but you don't read the word of God? It's no sin to read about politics. But are you an expert at that or are you an expert at running the race, running the race of faith according to the word of God that you're so familiar with? Which one is it? It's not usually both. It's not usually both. Now, all of the things I've just listed aren't sinful by themselves. They all have their place in life. In fact, you ought to do or be involved in most, if not all, of these things for balance in your life. That's a good thing. But when we are called to the strain of the race, and you and I are called to the strain of the race every week. I mean, few of us have weeks that we just coast. It's like, yeah, I'm running down a really steep hill in this part of the marathon, and it's so easy and so great. That doesn't happen to us very often, does it? So when the strain comes along, it's the love of these things that often preoccupy us and weigh us down. What do they do? They tell us, relax, rest, stop running. And eventually they'll even say to us, quit running the race. We have to be aware of good things that weigh down our marathon. Now, for some of you, it's not so much your overt, continued sins that make you a weak Christian. It's that your life is full of weights. And you're trying to run with a 30-pounder on your right leg and a 50-pounder on your left leg and you're carrying a huge load on your back because your life isn't full of faith. It's full of all these other things that, even though they're right and good, tend to displace faith in your life. And so this is a call for you and certainly for me to lay the impediments aside and run. <laughs> and run. There's a second thing that he calls us to lay aside, and that's sin. Lay aside every weight. Pastor, I laid aside two or three. That's enough. I'm good right now. Lay aside every weight. Lay aside all of them. And the sin. In other words, and all of it too. And the sin which clings so closely. Uh, many of the commentators suggest that the and here is... Um, really should be translated something like especially. Like all sins are weights, not all weights are sins. So you get rid of all the weights, especially those weights that are sinful, right? especially sinful things. Um, it's explanatory as a, as a second phrase. Perhaps that's right. But we certainly recognize in this second phrase that sin clings closely to us. Will any of us deny that? Now, the word that, in, at least in my Bible, is translated as claims is a very unusual word. It's found very few times, once in the Bible, and rarely outside of the Bible. So we're not exactly sure what it means, except that, again, it's obvious it's trying to prevent us from doing something good. The, the picture might be 
that sin tries to kind of grab us by the ankles and trip us up. It's like it tries to wrap around our legs so that we're so that we're doing this instead of running. Sin entangles us. And that, of course, is the goal of all sin. It is trying to stop us from getting to heaven. And when it can't stop us completely, it wants to slow us down and discourage us and distract us. And again, we've all experienced this, and so it shouldn't take a lot of urging for me, for you and I, to take this warning seriously. You know John Owen's famous line in this regard, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Well, this verse is a call to put sin to death. Or to use another biblical image, to put it off. Or as it says here, to lay it aside. Why? Because it's trying to get you to fall. And you can't run your race when you're lying on the ground. You can't do it. You're not doing it. Sin prevents progress in the Christian marathon. And so we're called to actively and continually work to lay aside sin. So, we don't have a one time in our life where we examine things that are weighing us down and we get rid of them and we never have to think about it. That's a regular activity we have to engage in. Well, so it is with sin. Every once in a while you hear, it's usually a younger Christian, and they will say, oh, it's so great. God has delivered me from such and such a sin. Well, in, in one sense, he absolutely has. And if what you're saying is, in your experience, he largely has, that's great. But if what you're telling me is you think you can now ignore this, I promise you it's coming back. I promise you it's coming back. We have to keep on laying sin. We have to keep at the work of mortifying it pulling it off. It's not a one-time call. And this is an active call. In other words, he is calling you to do something. Sin doesn't fall off by itself. It must be laid aside. It has to be firmly grabbed and thrown down. In other words, you should have a plan. For many of you, the reason that you haven't progressed against certain sins in your life is because even though you're disgusted by them, even though you ask for forgiveness, even though you pray against them, you've never actually fought it. You've never actually done anything about it. You've never actually grabbed it and said, away with you. You've never taken the inkwell and thrown it at the devil. You've never done that. Well, the Bible doesn't say... Only pray about it and hate it and wish it were gone. All that's good. But he calls you to do more. You have to lay it aside. You have to actively try to put it to death. In other words, you should have a plan. That's why if you and I get in counseling together and you're struggling with something, we're going to talk about some general Bible doctrine truths, but we're going to come up with, you're going to come up with, some very specific ways to beat something. Why? Because unless you take it off, it's not going away. It's not going away. Sin doesn't fall off by itself. 
Sometimes we're so foolish as to think it's safe to leave it on. I can play with it. I can placate it. I can, um, I can use it to my advantage. Quit listening to yourself and listen to the Word of God. The Word of God says your sin is trying to stop you from finishing the race of faith. Sin is trying to trip you up and put you on the ground so that you're not progressing anymore. Sin is trying to kill you. And I think the author here is, is speaking not so much of individual sins, although that's obviously how we have to deal with it, but of remaining sin, of still indwelling sin among believers. You know, sin, <coughs> sin that clings to us. You know, that's that principle that always seems to be with you no matter where you go. Romans 7. It's that selfishness that you, yeah, you just can't seem to divest of yourself. It's present while you run, and it's an enemy of your running. It's an enemy of faith. It's an enemy of endurance and exertion. It hates regulation, and it doesn't want to see you make progress. And for all of those reasons, you should learn to see it for what it is. It's not just the way you are. It's not just the way yeah, you are just that way. But that's remaining sin, believer. And it needs to be laid aside. And because of what it's trying to do, the only rational response by you to it is to hate it. This thing I can't seem to give up, or I don't want to give up, or I, is keeping me from God and Christ and heaven. It's keeping me from finishing the race, or it could. Because these aren't, these aren't fake threats to get you to live a very um, legalistic life so that you won't have any joy in this life. That's not the context of Hebrews at all. He's saying, you're running a race. You've got an enemy who's trying to trip you up. You need to get rid of him so you finish the race and actually receive what God promised. That's, that's the vision. And we need to take that seriously. We need to believe what he's saying. Well, the final support for running the race. We've laid off two things. And this, this third thing is uh, found in verse 2. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, and for the joy that was set before him, endured, there's our word, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here is the great habit that we must learn if we are going to successfully complete our marathon of faith. We must look to Jesus. We must learn to constantly keep looking to Jesus. Verse 1 encouraged us to remember that we're not alone in this race of faith. We're to be aware that others have successfully finished. But we're not called, in verse 1, to stare at those finishers. 
we are to be aware that they have successfully finished. But we are not to stare at them. They are not our fixation. Jesus is to be. There is one that we should look to, and that one is here called Jesus. We are to keep looking at Jesus. And the word means to focus on. It means to give concentrated attention to. Now, it's interesting. They use, uh, the, the preacher uses his, uses Jesus' name, human name. He doesn't call him Jesus Christ. He doesn't call him some of the other terms so common in the New Testament. He just calls him Jesus. And I, and I think that's because he's trying to put for us, front and center, the humanity of the God-man. This is appropriate because in this verse, verse 2, we, we find out that Jesus actually lived a life of faith for us. He ran a race too. He endured through the whole race. He crossed the finish line. In fact, it might even be in the back of the preacher's mind that he intends for us to think of Jesus in the stands with these other witnesses. Because remember, he, he finished the race too. He crossed the line. He, he got there. But in any case, we don't look at the others. We look to him alone. Well, now, why do we look to him? And there are three reasons that this verse gives us. These are three things that he does uh, for us, really. First, we look to Jesus because he is the founder of our faith. That means he is the author of it. He's the originator. If you have saving faith, where did it come from? Your dead, unbelieving soul? You say, Pastor, that's not, that's not possible. Dead in a sense. I couldn't believe in Jesus by myself. That's right. He needed to be raised from the dead. Where did your saving faith come from? Is it from yourself or is it from God? Well, of course, it's from God Amen. through Jesus Christ. By his perfect life and death, he earned everything his people needed for salvation, including faith. You see, his father assigned him a, a task. He had a calling, and he sent him into the world. He gave him a body, and he sent him into the world so that when he would complete it, he would merit salvation for all the elect. And, of course, Jesus, the God-man, did everything that his father commanded. And so as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, by the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. How is this righteousness conveyed to people? By the instrument of faith, <laughs> through the power of the Holy Spirit, applied to them from the infinite storehouse of grace that's found in Jesus Christ. So Jesus should be loved and appreciated in part because the gift of faith that you have, Christian, was earned by him for you. Faith is not you exercising your free will out of your so-called native abilities. No, saving faith is an implantation. It's a grace that makes you able and willing to choose 
One really good verse in this regard is Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Let's take that apart quickly. It has been granted to you. It's been graced or gifted. Faith is a present from God. Why? For the sake of Jesus Christ. Not for my sake? No, not for your sake. You couldn't do anything to earn it. You didn't merit it. There was nothing in you that made God want to give you faith. There was everything in Jesus Christ. You were even elected in Jesus Christ. Everything's in Christ. So for the sake of him, who he was in his person and what he did as a man on the earth earned that faith and every other grace for you. So what does that benefit you? So that you should be able to believe. So that you can believe. It's been granted to you for the sake of Jesus that you should believe in him. You see, faith is a grace. Faith is a gift earned by Jesus and given to you so that you can believe and be saved. And if that's all Jesus was in regard to our faith, many of us would be quite worried because we know very well we can't maintain our own faith. But here's the, here's the second great thing that Jesus is and why we look to him. He's not only the originator or author or beginning of our faith, he is the perfecter of it. From beginning to end, Jesus is in charge of faith. You're not. Yes, you have responsibilities. Yes. But he's the one giving grace. He's the one pouring out faith. He's the one giving the Holy Spirit. He's the one at work. So he's the perfecter of our faith. It's his plan, and nothing can stop this, that the faith he has granted to you will reach its proper goal. In this verse, it's called the telos. It's the, it's the goal. It's the intent. It's the end marker. Philippians 1.6 proclaims that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. And this is rooted in his perfect work of infinite value as the God-man. There simply is nothing that can stop Jesus from either initially applying or supporting or perfecting faith in you, not even you. You are not stronger than him. It's all rooted in him, not us. And so your faith, my faith, is secure. It's secure. <coughs> you could even say our faith is unstoppable. Now, I hope that's a great comfort to you in the race of faith. Because the power that's enabling you to run isn't ultimately from you, but it's from Jesus. Our faith cannot ultimately fail. 
because its source isn't in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. Yes, it's placed in us. Yes, in that sense, it's our faith. Yes. But it's the gift of Christ. It's nurtured by the Holy Spirit working in us both to will and to do all of God's good pleasure. And all of this is from the infinite storehouse of grace that is the person, Jesus Christ. So when you feel like your faith is going to fall, when you think it's going to come up short, when you're failing, what do you do? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Keep staring at Jesus. What do you need? I need forgiveness because my faith is, is, has let me down and I've gone. Look to Jesus. I need my faith to grow. Look to Jesus. <laughs> I need it perfected. I want that. Look to Jesus. He's the only answer and he's all the answer. He's everything you need. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. When weights burden you, when sins trip you, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Go to him in prayer. Go with him. Go, go to him with me in just a few moments. To his supper. He's here. Spiritually. By faith, he's here. Look, look to him. Tell him what? I believe. Help my unbelief. Now there's an honest prayer for the gospels, right? Oh, but my faith is so faint. My distractions are so many. I can't even count how many times I failed. Oh, but Jesus, you lived and died to secure my salvation, not magically, not without instrumental cause, by faith. And so if I am to be saved in the end, and we are, we're promised that faith cannot fail. And it does not fail because Jesus never failed. It's really that simple. Look to Jesus. Will he who died for you refuse to listen to you or not give you what you need? No, Jesus will not, because he is the founder and perfecter of your faith. There's one more thing Jesus is, and one more reason you should look to Jesus. You should look to him as your ultimate example. You know, there are many examples in the Bible that we're to look to. We're, we're to look to the those who preceded us in the faith in chapter 11. Paul says things like, imitate me, mimic me as I mimic Christ. So we're to spur one another on. We're to, we're to live a life that's worthy of being imitated by others around us. But there's only one ultimate example. Those are all secondary. There's one perfect ultimate example, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, how is he an example? Well, look in the middle of verse 2. And it's this. He endured. He endured. Amen. His core calling from God was to endure the cross. That was no easy task. But what did he do? 
he despised the shame, and he accepted this torturous death because of love for his people and faithfulness to his father. He voluntarily went to the cross. This was an endurance he willingly chose to go through. In other words, he acted in faith. As a man, Jesus lived a life of faith. You see, God had made him promises from eternity past. Promises for the future, and he believes them. And what does Hebrews 11.1 1 tell us that is? That's faith. That's what faith is. It's belief in the future promises of God. It's believing them so strongly that they become real to you, and you actually live your life out that way. Well, here's how much the man Jesus believed his father. He endured the cross. The shame meant nothing because of his faith. And then his heavenly father rewarded that obedience. And so according to this verse, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's in the place of power and majesty. He's in the place of approval. And in all of this, he's our example. I don't mean that our calling is exactly the same as his. No, he alone was the Messiah of God. We don't have to die on a cross in order to sit at God the Father's right hand. But the pattern is the same. He, too, was a real man. And by faith, he had to run the race of faith. So he believed. And he had to endure. And when he did, he was rewarded. Doesn't that sound like all the examples of Hebrews 11? Yes, because the pattern's exactly the same. And the pattern's the same for us. God speaks, we hear, we believe by his grace, we follow, and at the end we will be rewarded. And so Jesus is the greatest example of how faith is to endure under suffering and what the rewards of faith are. So we're reminded to hope in God's promises with joyful anticipation. You know, most of us don't know a lot of shame because of our Christian profession, but, but we know some. We're probably going to know more. But all of us are called to take up our cross and follow Christ, and, and where that leads, dear ones, is gaining the promise. It's to be with God. It's new heavens and new earth. It's glory. Well, two quick uses and we'll be done. First, I want to urge each of you to run the race you are called to run. Now, in one sense, we're all called to run the same race. In another sense, two, no, no two of us run exactly the same. None of our races look exactly like Jesus's, for example, although it does follow the same pattern. You say, well, I, God isn't asking me to leave some foreign country like Abraham. I don't ha He's not asking me to sacrifice my son. Um, I kind of wish he'd give me the opportunity, though, to refuse the riches of Egypt. Wouldn't it be cool if I could stop the, the mouths of lions? Wow, there's a calling. I'd love to exercise faith like that. Few, few of any of us 
will have such unusual callings. But every one of us is a, a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, a worker, a churchman, on and on the list could go. And it's as that that you are called to run your race. How do pastors run the race? As pastors. And so verses like 1 Timothy 4.16 are very important to me. Because if I live my life of faith as if I'm a mom, I'm running the wrong race. I wasn't called to that, and I won't cross the right finish line. I've been called as a pastor, as a man, as a husband, as a but one of my callings is as a pastor. And here's what I have to do. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this. Endure. Endure. Keep on going. Don't stop. Throw off weight. Don't get tripped up by sin. Persist in this. Well, what will be the result if I do that? For by so doing, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says... You will save both yourself and your hearers. That's my calling of faith. That's my race of faith. Now, it'd be easy to call out or illustrate a, a number of you men's callings. I'm going to purposely not do that because I think that's relatively easy. Well, what about moms? We don't have a calling like that. Come on. Paul strongly disagrees with you. <laughs> Here's part of your calling. Wives, mothers, typically, but not always. Here's what he says. You will be saved through childbearing. If you continue, if you endure, if you keep on going, in faith. What? I'll be saved through childbearing? There's nothing magical about giving birth. That doesn't make you a Christian. But in your calling, ordinarily, that's what you're called to, wives? Will you continue in that in faith? And if you do that, with love and holiness and self-control, you will be saved. And so what I call each and every one of you to do is run by faith the race that God is calling you to. So, you have two assignments, right? One is figure out what your weights are, not what anybody else's is. And the second assignment is you figure out what your race is and you run that race. Not a, not a different race. And secondly, and finally, and very quickly, I hope you see in all of this a great reason for optimism. For, for holy, Bible-based hope. Some of you are very discouraged by the weights and sins in your life. Maybe they're yours, maybe they're somebody else's, but it, they're really hard. And you, and I know because you've told me, you just feel like giving up. We, we all know what you're talking about, brother and sister. We, we all get it. 
But look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You will finish the race. You must finish the race. Because he finished the race. So no other outcome is possible. We will endure. Because he endured. We will be rewarded. Because he was rewarded. Your faith is rooted and nourished and certain. Because it's faith in Christ. You and I have in real trouble. It's faith in ourselves. That's why the false gospel of Oprah and virtually every other psychoanalyzed American is hellish. It is not good for you. You must not depend on yourself. There are not answers inside of yourself. You must look to Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only one who has the direction, the grace, to give you so that you can conquer, so that you can finish the race. So to everyone here, I say this very simple thing. Look to Jesus and be saved. Look to Jesus and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to value and love your son more than we do. We take his name in our lips. We call ourselves by his name. And yet we don't look to him with the frequency, with the longing, with the recognition that in him is, he is our life. Help us through your word to be changed in this regard and help us as we examine ourselves both for weights and for callings that we would run this race with real wisdom, with real according to biblical truth, so that we would arrive safe and sound into his arms as we cross the line. In his name, we ask these things.